This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Mike Hug, CFO of Wyndham Destinations. You're listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 469. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. On today's show, we speak to Jim Peters, CFO and Executive Vice President of the Whirlpool Corporation. Jim Peters was appointed Whirlpool's Finance Chief in 2016. After climbing the ranks and serving as CFO of Whirlpool North America, and before that, CFO of Whirlpool Europe, Jim's ascension into the role parallels the transformation of the manufacturer's finance function into an enterprise business partner. Our discussion with Jim begins after this message. In a world that's always changing, one thing never does. Your need to adapt. Your need to evolve. Your need to grow. That's why we built Workday, a single finance, HR, and planning system that can change as your needs change and evolve as the world evolves. To learn how Workday is helping mid-sized organizations embrace the future with confidence, Visit us at Workday.com. Hello, we're speaking with Jim Peters, CFO and Executive Vice President of the Whirlpool Corporation. Whirlpool, of course, is the leading major home appliance company with... uh, Approximately $21 billion in annual sales last year, 92,000 employees, 70 manufacturing and technology research centers. That goes, those are 19, uh, 2017 numbers, forgive me. Jim, welcome. Well, thank you. It's good to be here, Jack. As you might know, we always like to begin by asking finance leaders to take a look back and identify for us some of those experiences they had along the way that in hindsight they realized had a big impact on helping them become a, you know, a better leader and helping them move forward. And uh, we'd like to begin in that same place uh, and have you reflect backwards for us. What would you share with us, Jim? Yeah, I think, you know, if I, I look back on my career, obviously over, you know, 20-plus years I've had a lot of 
different and great experiences that, that have helped me to develop, and whether it was in professional services and different clients I dealt with and all that. But probably the most formative ones I've had have been in my 15, almost 15 years here at Whirlpool. And, you know, if I really look back to when I first joined the company in 2004, right after that we entered into uh, an agreement to acquire Maytag, which was our largest domestic, uh, one of our largest domestic competitors here in the U.S. at that time. And, you know, what, how that really was formative for me is the first thing was is I started out on the project as, as really more of an expert in the accounting area, but was able to expand my area of influence and the things that I was dealing with to all the different areas of finance, including tax even at one point during there, uh, which I, I then had to inform our, our CFO back then, Roy Templin, that I wasn't quite the expert in tax that I probably should be, but I would make sure I held, helped him find the right resources to get the right answers. But, but what happened with that is, as I said, it really forced me to think kind of in, in a, a lot of different dimensions in terms of how you go about thinking about an acquisition, the, the post-merger integration work that needs to happen, is this a business that we really want to own, and how do you create value with it? And, and not just thinking about the aspect I was originally brought in, the accounting aspect. The other part of it was that it gave me exposure to senior leaders within Whirlpool in a very short period of time. And I went from you know being someone who stepped in at a, at a director-level position to interacting with our CEO, Jeff Fettig, at the time on a daily basis as we went through this process and really gave me a lot of good visibility to leadership and, and, and helped me to develop and also helped me to inspire you know, confidence in them that they could trust me to, to deliver on what was at the time and still is today our biggest acquisition we ever did. I think then if, if you kind of roll it forward a little bit and, and through some of those opportunities I had, I continued to grow within the company. I moved in 2007 to, uh, to Italy to work within our uh, European headquarters there. And in 2008, I became our CFO for EMEA. Um, and if you look back, that was right around summer of 2008. Well, if you look back just after summer, right around the end of summer of 2008 was when Lehman Brothers went under. Uh, we had a global economic, you know, fi financial economic crisis going on. And I was in my first real big finance leadership role with a, uh, you know, multi-billion dollar business within EMEA. And as you can imagine, I mean, chaos ensued. You had currencies that were shooting in many different directions, liquidity issues among suppliers, among customers. Even our own company was really looking at how do we make sure we have the, the necessary liquidity because there was a lot of uncertainty in the marketplace. And, and that's one of these things. In high, when you're in the middle of it, you're, you're like, boy, this is difficult. This is trying. But once you get through it and you, and you look back in hindsight, you're like, boy, I really learned a lot there in terms of how to deal in a volatile environment which today, now if you look at the environment we deal in today, it's, it's very relevant because currencies are moving all the time, commodity costs, tariffs, geopolitical uh, you know, issues. It's, it's just a constant – volatility has probably become the norm. So you know, that was one of the key things that helped me to develop there. And I'd say when I came back from Europe and I, I went to be our CFO of North America, one of the, the big steps there for me was, was now managing a very large team of people uh, but also being a CFO for a $10 billion-plus business at that time. And it really forced me to de develop some of my operational skills, uh, you know, much more deeply, spent a lot of time rolling up my sleeves and getting in the operations of the business, understanding our, our manufacturing, our procurement, uh, you know, our, our customer base, the retailers that we dealt with. And, you know, if I, if I kind of step back, I think that is the role where I really learned about our business and, and got a deep knowledge of how we go to market 
market, uh, how we, you know, bring, bring our products to consumers, uh, and, and what really drives the value within our business overall. So those are kind of some of the big formative experiences I've had. Wow, yeah, some great detail there. Uh, thank you. You know, it's, it's interesting. When I saw your bio, I, I thought that it could be easily boiled down by many, perhaps, as thinking that, um, well, here is the right executive who chose the right company, who um, ascended in the ranks at the right time. And we all know that careers don't work that way. I like to think that it boils down often to decision-making and making the right decision. And too often, we don't uh, – executives don't think about how they make decisions along the way. And I'm wondering if, if you wouldn't mind uh, sharing with us how your uh, decision-making, when it came to big decisions, how that evolved over time. Yeah, no, I, I definitely. And I think if I look at earlier on in my career, my decision-making was probably the way I made decisions was much more narrowly focused. And typically I was looking at, at just maybe the facts I had in front of me, the information I had in front of me, and thinking about it maybe from typically only a finance discipline mindset. As I grew throughout my career and stepped into these bigger and bigger roles, my decision-making really had to start to encompass much more than, than just financial implications and, and what were the financial concerns. Uh, you know, the decisions we make today, or, you know, I make today, they involve, uh, you know, not just financial matters, but, but investments in our products, decisions around our products that we're going to be offering, um, you know, brands, you know, investments within our brands, and, and how will that influence the, our ability to, to sell more product around the world. I, I make decisions that affect, uh, you know, employment and all that, obviously making decisions on where to put facilities and, and levels of headcount that we need in different locations. And so, you know, my decision-making and the way I go about it has had to become a lot more multidisciplinary, but it's also required um, me to, to really build a good network among peers and other folks within the company that have a lot of different levels of expertise that I can search out, to, you know, as we're going through that decision process to make sure I understand things correctly. So, you know, as I said, when I, I really step back, I think now when I make it, I, I always tell people, is I, now I believe I think enterprise-wide with every decision I make rather than local, regional, functional focus. Everything I think about I have to th is how will this affect the enterprise globally or at least on a, on a pretty broad scale. When you stepped in uh, to uh, the current role, and I guess it's uh, 2016, more or less, you, you took over as Executive Vice President and CFO there. Is there um, changes you, you needed to, you envision making to the team as you looked forward and understood how finance was changing and the types of skills you would need? How is that team going to be modified in some way? What would you tell us? Well, Jack, I'd say the, the real good thing about when I stepped into the role is I had you can call it good fortune or whatever, of, of having been at Whirlpool for an extended period of time and worked in multiple finance leadership roles. And so I had a chance along the way to develop and work with a lot of strong talents within our organization, our finance organization. 
And then I, I also had the, the pleasure of uh, working with Larry Venturelli, who was the CFO before me, who really we had about a year to a year and a half transition as I knew that he was, you know, contemplating retirement and I, I knew I was going to be his successor. And we worked really well together in terms of looking at the, the setup of the organization, the people that were in key roles. Uh, as I said, I had the chance to develop many of them earlier on in their careers. And so when I stepped into the role on day one, the nice thing was that the organization that was in place was something I had the chance to influence and shape leading up to that. And so for me, it was it was less about the organization that existed that then. My focus became more on over the next five years, how do I see the organization evolving, who will be key people that I need to bring in and to, keep, to develop for big roles. But then also, as you mentioned, my focus really turned to Whirlpool Finance, what do we want to be and how do we want to evolve over the next five plus years? And really started, took my, my leadership team that I had and stepped back and said, you know, let's go and let's think about this. And, and because the CFOs before me had always done a good job of, of laying out their vision, but, you know, we had followed that and now it was time for me to lay out mine. And, and so what we did, we stepped back and we said, one, we look at our organization today, and what we really want to do is drive us from being an organization that, that reports numbers, that gathers numbers, and all that, to someone who really helps to interpret and drive the right analysis so we can make good business decisions go forward. And we use the term business leadership is what we really label it as, and we say, you know, listen, there are things that we need to look at within our systems, within our processes, and within how we develop people to make sure that over the next coming years we turn this organization into one that is really focused at, at helping to drive the right decisions to create value for Whirlpool. The good thing here and, and that I've always enjoyed in many of the roles that I've been in is that our operational leaders really seek out finance when they're making decisions and they want them involved. And what I'm trying to make sure is that the, the people we have, the processes we have and all that that we develop will continue to facilitate, but even take that to the next level in terms of the, the type of counsel, advice, analytics we can provide to them, uh, you know, to, to really help drive those decisions. I think another key thing, you know, as I step back and look at that, what I, I really want the organization to be, and Jeff Fettig, our uh, previous uh, CEO and chairman, challenged me to this earlier on in my career. He said, Jim, I want finance to be an exporter of talent to the organization. And, you know, if, if I look back and all that, that's really been one of the things that we continue to focus on even now is how do we not just develop our, our folks within the finance organization to be good finance people, but how do we turn them into good business leaders? How do we turn them into people who could potentially run business units? And, and even if you, you step back right now and look at of our four regions around the world, two of them are actually run by ex-finance people within Whirlpool, Joe Liatini in North America was actually a finance director with us, and then uh, Joao Brega in Latin America was actually the CFO of our Latin American business at one point. So, you know, that's really what, as, as I look at the organization, the vision I have, and, and what we're trying to drive to. As part of that effort, is there a, we hear that term embedding, that finance people are today being embedded in different business groups, and uh, while they report back to the finance leadership, they, they may also report with the local general manager or what have you. Has that been going on, I would imagine, for some time at, at Whirlpool? And 
Um, is there something you've done to enhance that? Well, I, I would say it's definitely been going on, I think, as long as I've been at Whirlpool, and that's the great thing is uh, I'm a big supporter of that, that our finance people really sit with the businesses that they work with, and they're, they're integrated into those businesses. And, and as I said, my personal experience of doing that has really solidified that, that that's the right way to do it. Now, the thing that I look at as, as being the global finance leader is how do I make sure that, that the way we look at things, that we're helping to standardize things across so that the finance folks may be reporting into different business units or sitting with them, but they're using common tools. They're using common practices, the, you know, standards that they, they know they have to abide by, common policies. And it's really how do we support them there as well as with, with many of these finance people that are embedded in these businesses, they're, they're very broad in terms of the skill set they have, but there's certain areas where they may not have the in-depth knowledge, be it tax or treasury or, or technical accounting areas. And we make sure on a more of a global, centralized, or at least on a regional level, we can provide the support that they need in those specialized areas that allows them to stay focused on the business that they're working with and not have to always be you know, developing this deep expertise, recreating the wheel, or, or bringing in individuals into their organization that they only utilize 25 or 50 percent. Um, and so it's, it's a balance, and I think that's the one thing I think at Whirlpool we've really done well over the years is finding that right balance of how to keep our finance people embedded in, in the businesses. Well, let's find out something about your, uh, your day-to-day and uh, those metrics or numbers that are always top of mind. We like to say these are the numbers that you look at uh, before your first cup of coffee. What, what would you share with us? Well, well, Jack, I would say that, that first off, I actually have to have my, my cup of coffee before I look at any numbers. Uh, my first cup of coffee is a, is a, but I have it pretty soon after I wake up. And, and you know, being in a large global business, the, the interesting thing is, is that you get information 24 hours a day coming in. Uh, because we, there's, in some part of the world we're still operating or we're finishing up our day or we're beginning our day. And, you know, so sometimes it's – I'm just getting – there's a lot of information that's coming in. Now, I'd say on a daily basis some of the first things that, that I look at is, is I get reports from all over the globe that show how much product did we ship um, by country, by product type, et cetera, what kind of orders are we getting in. And, and why those are important is it, it helps us to see the trends in the marketplace and it helps us to see – uh, you know, are we at the levels that we expect? How do we compare to prior years? Um, because, you know, that's, that's just a big thing for us is, is the amount of product that we're producing and shipping out at any point in time. So, you know, that's one of the first things I get. On a, on a more regular basis, I get things like market share reports that really show how we're performing in various markets, how's our brand preference looking, um, you know, what's the sell-through level at retailers, the different retailers we deal with, how much inventory might they have on hand. And some of that, what that does is as we look back into our own supply chain, it helps us to make the right decisions on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis in terms of setting production levels, setting our own inventory levels, um, you know, what trends we might be seeing in the marketplace. Do we need to adjust to those? Um, you know, as I, I mentioned, and I've said the word a couple times, inventory, one of the key reports I look at around here is, is our inventory levels. Um, and I get that from multiple parts of the world on a weekly basis. And the reason I say that is, is that's almost the, I would say our supply chain is kind of like the circulatory system of our company. And you want to see how well it's flowing and you want to see if it's getting blocked up anywhere. And inventory, controlling inventory in our company is, is the 
key to, one, having product that's available to be delivered to the retailers to be sold, but also it's the key to managing our working capital and, and our cash flow. Um, because if, if all of a sudden things slow down and our inventory is building too fast, we get too much cash tied up in inventory. Uh, on the other hand, as I said, if, if things – if actually demand is very strong and our inventories are starting to drop down, then our issue becomes we have availability issues, we miss sales, and it turns into a, a missed cash flow opportunity. So I would say inventory is probably one of the key things I look at. Um, you know, and then the other things that, that I look at on a regular basis, outside of just, you know, the regular P&L type of items, is, is I look at headcount reports from around the globe. Um, because I know headcount is one of the biggest drivers of our expense and our infrastructure costs. And it's not just a driver because of the salary and all that that goes with it. For every individual we have, it, it means the amount of office space we need to have, the computers. There's so many other costs that go along with it. So, you know, we really look at where our headcount is against where we expected it to be. And it's one of the, the key metrics. And also, what's our revenue per employee um, is a metric that we look at on a regular basis. Because some, a lot of our headcount can fluctuate depending on levels of sales in certain markets. You need more customer service people. You need more sales people, et cetera. So, you know, we have metrics not just looking at the actual number of heads, but what's the productivity that we have per person. Now, I'm curious. Do you ever think the job you – uh, sort of in today might be different from uh, 10 years ago, uh, the CFO in that point in time, what was top of mind for them is no longer top of mind for you? Or would you say, no, it is the same role, it's just larger <laughs> and it's more digitized maybe? I, I don't know. What would you share with us? Is it very different? Uh, I would say there's a lot of things that are very similar. Um, and having known my, my predecessors all the way back then, there's a lot of things that, you know, I probably think about that they think about. I think that maybe one of the differences between me and maybe my, you know, my last two predecessors is I came more up through the operational side of our business with deeper experience within the appliance business and closer to the, you know, the sales and manufacturing side and all that. And so, I think I probably think a lot more about the operations of the business, how it influences things. Um, I spend a lot of my time focusing there. I spend more time than, than they probably did of traveling around to our different regions and really, you know, working with them, trying to understand issues that they're dealing with and, and how can we support them. I think that they had maybe more of an external focus at the time, and a lot of that I, I, I say is, is because things like our investor relations function and other areas like that weren't as well developed back then. And what I think my two predecessors really did a great job of doing, both Roy Templin and Larry Venturelli, is, is they built up a lot of competencies in those areas of just core finance, of investor relations, external reporting, and other things to a level that when I stepped into the job, that into the role, those things were, were at a much higher level and needed less focus and less of my time, which has allowed me to leverage my, my background of working within the business to become much more operational focused than they were. So it's, it's not that they probably didn't want to do stuff like that, but back then, we really, as we were growing as a global company and had done multiple acquisitions over periods of time within there, we just had different needs that the CFO had to focus on. Um, today, I think in a lot of those, those core functions that we have, I have some really strong teams, but also just strong processes that we've developed and good competencies and capabilities that allow me to spend less time focusing on those.
I mentioned uh, environmental sustainability and that it's quite a, a sizable initiative that Whirlpool has uh, sort of led the way in certain respects. Um, I, I just want to quote this one number that I see on the site here. Four wind farms in the U.S. offset approximately 70% of the plant's electricity consumption. Just very surprising to me. Uh, and, and so are some of these other numbers that you share on the site. just want to mention that because it's so clear that this being very numerically driven, that finances perhaps played a role. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can share or share some thoughts on the sustainability efforts there. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, here's the thing on, on sustainability, and we look at it like we look at any type of innovation within our products. Um, you know, the way that we define innovation is, one, it has to be something new. Um, it has to be something that brings value to the consumer, and a lot of the sustainability is, is more about bringing value to, to the consumer, to our employees, to all the stakeholders in terms of just a responsible uh, approach that we have. But then it also has to create value. And, you know, as we look at any of those type of things, um, you know, we're always looking at one with some of the uh, earlier on sustainability is, was more viewed as energy efficiency. And that was a big focus of ours, especially outside the U.S., where energy costs were much higher in, in different locations. So we've always had a very strong focus there in terms of how do we make our appliances more energy efficient? How do we make them consume less water? Um, you know, what are the different things we can do there? And then as, that, as time goes on, you know, we, we became started looking at more about recycling and, and content of materials within our, our appliances and had a focus on that. Um, Again, still along the lines of, of making sure it created value and it, there was something in there that, you know, we could either save money as Whirlpool, find a more efficient way to do things. Uh, you know, with the energy efficiency, we, we were able, consumers were willing to pay more for it in many locations because it did deliver a savings to them. Uh, you know, and then as we continue to go forward and talk about things like, you know, wind farms and that, and we've been in many of our manufacturing facilities looked at more economical ways to operate that do save energy, that do reduce the water usage. Um, and, and so we tie those all together, that it's, it's, it's not just one or the other, but, but how, do you, how do you drive, uh, you know, make, make progress within the sustainability area while also making sure that you're doing it in a fiscally responsible way. Um, because, you know, the other we've, – we've had ones we've tried before and in certain markets where we've tried to bring out something that's energy efficient. The problem was the cost that it was, the consumer wasn't willing to pay for it. And so you had to try and find a way to work with energy companies to subsidize it, but it, it still was above and beyond what the consumer was willing to pay for. And, and those don't make sense either because you spend a lot of money developing them, and then nobody really wants them because the cost is just too high. So you have to find a way to bring that innovation to them at a reasonable cost um, that they can then embrace, and, and then it's a win-win. When we come back, we ask Whirlpool CFO Jim Peters for a finance strategic moment. But first, we have our Thought Leader Minute. Hi, we're here at the Sage Intact Modern SaaS Finance Summit, and we've caught up with Jeff Epstein, operating partner for Bessemer Venture Partners. He is the former CFO of Oracle and had earlier CFO tours of duty at DoubleClick and King World Productions, just to name a few. Jeff, welcome. Jack, it's great to be here. Jeff, earlier today you were talking about, of course, uh, different stages in fa the fast growth companies. Uh, today, and uh, 
want to ask about the CFO and how the CFO role sort of evolves in companies that begin to grow rapidly, where they're focusing. As uh, a company begins to rapidly scale, what happens to their focus? Well, I would say the first rule of thumb for any CFO is don't run out of money. So you need to understand what your cash position is and how much you're burning. Every company that we invest in is losing money. That's why they need venture capital. Uh, and typically, they raise enough money to last a year, uh, sometimes two years, and the, so, somewhere between that one and two-year mark. And then the question is, what are you trying to prove with that one to two years worth of money, which will put you in a position where you can raise your next round? So if if you if you invest the money and a year has gone by and you haven't really changed very much, you're probably going to find it difficult to raise the next round. And that depends on where you are in your life cycle. So the very early stage company, you're trying to prove product market fit. You're raising your money, you're experimenting, you're trying to find your first few customers. If you're a B2B company, you want to get to 10 referenceable customers who think that you're great, who are paying you. If you get to that level, and 10 is an arbitrary number, whether it's 9 or 11, it's just it's a handful of customers. So a, an investor can talk to the customers and say, yes, I, I'm delighted with this product. It, set, it solves my problem. All my friends should use it. That's what we're looking to hear. Now, once you've done that, you've now earned the right to get to your next round. Uh, that was the, the pre-seed round. Then the next round is going to be, okay, I'm going to now raise money, and I'm going to prove my revenue model. And so at each stage, there's another thing that you're trying to prove uh, so that investors will find you more attractive. Well, good news. Jeff Epstein has agreed to answer a few more of our questions. So we'll return with Jeff in just a few minutes. But right now, we return to our featured CFO interview. I want to ask for what we refer to as a, a finance strategic moment. And this is just uh, you know something you probably experience daily, but at the same time, we're looking for an anecdote uh, that over the course of your career, your lines of sight into the organization allowed you to identify an opportunity or a risk, whatever it may have been, and uh, maybe point the uh, organization in a new direction, whatever uh, comes to mind. Uh, what would you share with us? Yeah, I, you know, if I think back, probably one of the, the biggest moments I ever had like that, and, and it's, it's somewhat strategic but also very tactical in nature, is that in 2010, when I came to North, our North America business, uh, at the beginning of 2010, there were some uh, incentives in place for consumers to go out and buy more energy-efficient uh, washing machines and, and dryers and that. And what happened, though, is, is – and, and the demand for appliances went up very rapidly from, you know, it was actually had been falling for a period of years as the housing market had been under a lot of pressure. Over a six-month period, demand went up. Well, unfortunately, those incentives went away very quickly, and demand dropped significantly again. And what it put, uh, you know, Whirlpool in our North America business is put us in a very tough situation in terms of just the profitability of our business, which our North America business has historically been our strongest business and is one of our, one of our biggest cash generators. And just having stepped into that business and seeing where it was, you know, it could, the first thing for me was that a realization that this downturn was not as te was not temporary, and it, it, we were not going to see an increase in demand in a probably in a, in a multi-year period still after that. And to be honest, we didn't see an increase in demand until 2013 for appliances. And 
and by, by realizing that and, and pointing that out to our organization, who really wanted to be more optimistic and thought there was going to be recovery in the industry sooner, it, it allowed us to change the mindset of our organization and our leadership and, and to say, okay, in order to turn around this business, it requires that we're going to need to take action. We're going to need to make some tough decisions. We're going to have to take some risks along the way. And, and you know, what I say about that is, is we had to – you know, we had to make certain decisions on our production footprint, just that the demand for certain products was not going to exist at the level that it had in the past. How would we get our production footprint aligned with what we thought future demand levels could be for specific products? As we did that and we had to make decisions to take inventory out of our systems, where, out of our logistics systems, where, were, where could we take the risk? Where were we willing to take the risks? How would we go about mitigating those risks as we went through that process? As I say, the tough decisions when you get in a state like that is you, you have to make decisions that you know for the overall enterprise are the right decisions, but they may negative in, negatively impact certain individuals and groups. And, and, you know, there's a human side to it that's always tough, but you have to, as, as a leader, you have to be able to deal with that in the right way, in a fair way, um, and, and really treating people with respect but knowing you have to make, you know, hard decisions. But then coming out of that, I think the thing that our organization learned, and this is why I always look back at it as a turning point, is the level of discipline we applied, not just in our North American business, but more globally, around certain operation parameters, certain decisions to invest in areas that might increase our fixed costs. Um, all of a sudden, we had a new approach to it and saying, you know what, we went through a lot of hardship to turn this business around during 2011 and 12. We don't really want to go back and ever have to do that again. So let's let's look at how the decisions we make now and how they will affect the future if demand levels fluctuate off of where they are significantly. And, and I think that's what, you know, when I step back and I think about the tactical things that we had to decide to do, it helped to change the mindset of our organization. And today, that North America business, I mean, we've luckily we've had some, you know, demand has been positive, but even this past year it was down slightly. It's still on record profitability because they're, they're operating with that level of discipline that we, we developed back then. We're going to move into our mentoring round where I'll ask you several quick questions intended to uh, inspire future finance leaders. What is it that's exciting you about finance and business now? Now that you're, you've been in the role for two years, you've already done all the things on your way to the CFO office. What is it that's exciting you now? I, the thing that excites me now is, is, one, I still think there's tons of opportunity in this business to grow it globally. There's many markets where penetration is well below the levels that it is in the U.S. Um, two, you know, in a, in a weird sort of a way, the volatility that occurs out there in the marketplace that's excitement daily. It may not be excitement that you always want, but it keeps you on your toes and trying to think. So you know, those are the things that I still think this industry has good possibilities to continue to grow. And, and every day there's a new challenge when I wake up. Something new is occurring. It may be an opportunity to grow the business. It may be a cost impact that we need to figure out how to deal with. But there's always something changing. Now, you've uh, illustrated for us that you had this sort of mentoring period before you became the CFO. The former CFO worked alongside you. Um, at the same time, there came a day <laughs> when it was yours. And uh, we'd like to ask this question. I mean, at that moment in time, what is it that you wish someone had told you <laughs> before you 
entered the CFO office? What is that piece of information that might have been helpful uh, that you did not receive? Yeah, I, you know, and if I look back, I, I tell you, there's, there's along the way, there's a couple things when in taking those big roles. And when I took my first big CFO role in EMEA, I wish somebody had told me that you have to really rely on your organization and have the right organization in place to support you because the role is too big for you to do it on your own. So luckily I learned that lesson a little bit sooner in, in taking on a big role. I think when, when I took on the CFO role, the, the global CFO role here at Whirlpool, is, is I had already had the experience of being out in front of investors, in front of analysts and all that. Um, but I had always had that experience with someone else there with me that really was more the lead in terms of they were answering most of the questions. And this, what it, I had to learn very quickly is, is not, I knew how to answer questions, but I had to, to learn to listen better, to understand truly what was the question they are asking and how do you make sure you're answering that question in the right sort of a way. And it's, it's very interesting because, you know, you're doing it internally. I was having internal discussions was very easy, but someone from the outside, you have to figure out what are they really trying to understand here through this question because they don't understand our business as well, and how do I convey that and, and make sure I, I convey the right information to them? And that's a skill that I, I didn't really learn until I was forced to be in that. And now, boy, I spend so much time with, you know, investors and analysts that it, it's come natural. But it took a while to develop that. seems like uh, just to get a little deeper on, on your comments there, uh, and you, you emphasized listening to the question and I have to believe part of that is, frankly, you, you get a lot of questions thrown at you all the time, and you want to make sure that they get the answer uh, that makes sense or, or, you know, the correct response. Yep. Um, sometimes you have to ask questions. And meanwhile, too often we think we hear the same question, and we don't. And, and, and the person asking the question might have had something else in mind. I, I, can you reflect a little more on that? Because I think it's a give and take there. Well, it is, and, and I think you made a good point as you start to say that. Is, is many a times the response doesn't always have to be an answer. The response can be a question back, clarifying and, and trying to understand what someone is, is truly looking for. Um, because many a times, especially as leaders, especially as executives, we always want to feel, you know, we, we have certain answers we want to give, and we always want, want to feel like we have that answer to throw out there right away and immediately. And sometimes it takes maybe being a little bit more interactive and to truly understand what the question is and what someone is looking for. But it doesn't just apply externally. I, I think, you know, that applies throughout everything you do daily in business. And, and you know, funny, we, because we were talking earlier about things that have shaped me along the way. I actually go back and remember something when we were acquiring Maytag that I had to sit down with one of our operational leaders to understand better his plans for the integration. And rather than me trying to tell him, I spent the first part of it just asking him questions and listening to make sure I understood before then I gave him some input and some ideas. And it wound up my ideas saved the company a significant amount of money. And this individual is long retired, but he still, when I see him today, loves to talk about this event. And it all came by listening and asking questions before saying, hey, here's what I think is the best answer. We'd like to ask uh, a more personal question here. Is there something that you do in your personal routine, or is there you have a habit that you uh, 
you're known for, perhaps, that you think in some way may have contributed to your professional success? Uh, yeah, I, I'd say the one thing that I've become a firm believer of over the years is that, um, you know, exercise is important. But I think it's more or less also just making sure you have some things in your life that you can do, that you enjoy, that allow you to disconnect, that allow you to relieve stress. Because these roles, these jobs can be very stressful. They can be all-consuming. Um, but if you don't find that way to keep yourself, you know, mentally clear, feeling physically well, feel keeping your energy levels high, it's very difficult to do. And so for my personal thing is I like to, to you know, have a good exercise uh, you know, regimen. I've, I've run multiple triathlons. I've run marathons. And I, you know, those are every now and then they give you a goal to work towards. But it's always just making sure that I set aside that time, you know, five, six times a week, 45 minutes to an hour, to just clear my head, get, some, get the blood pumping, uh, and, and I would say a lot of ideas I've come up with, I've come up with on runs. <laughs> uh, it's amazing some of the things you can think about when you just get out in the middle of nowhere and with a little peace and quiet. Were you always a runner? Did you run in your 20s, for instance? Yeah, I did. I ran in my 20s, and I did triathlons in my 20s. Uh, you know, before, uh, growing up, I was not much of a runner, more of a team sports person. And I took a break for a period of time, or I should say I, I wasn't disciplined for a period of time, and I noticed that it affected me. And so that when I was in my 30s, I got back into, um, you know, really having a, a good exercise regimen. And, and actually, I always say in my 40s, I was in the best shape of my life probably. Um, and, and really, and that's probably one of the things that I always say that helped me to perform also at work, that physically I always felt very good. CFO Jim Peters shares his priorities as a finance leader for the coming 12 months after this short message. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Okay, we're up to our final question. Over the next 12 months, what are your priorities as CFO of Whirlpool? Um, you know, there's, there's a handful of things. And one, you know, my priorities is, is to make sure that we improve the performance of the business. We're coming off a period of time right now where commodity costs have gone up, Tariffs have impacted us. Um, currencies have been, you know, so there's a lot of volatility. And we feel we've got the business in a good, stabilized in a good place, but we need to capitalize on certain opportunities to expand our margins, and that's one of our, one of my biggest priorities. And I focus more to the cost side of, of that, um, but also, you know, keep a strong focus on the commercial side. Uh, you know, additionally, one of my key priorities is making sure that, you know, as we look – globally right now, and, and you, know, you hear 
hear everyone talking about this, but no one can say when, is, is you know, at some point in time, there could be another recession. There could be a, a global downturn. So I spend a lot of my time focusing on the liquidity of the company. How do we prepare ourselves for those type of situations? I mean, our balance sheet is in a healthy place, but how do we get it in a, in a very healthy place? Um, that'll make sure that, you know, when we get into those time periods, we feel good, but also as, as opportunities come up to do things such as acquisitions or other things, we have the appropriate capital we need. And so, you know, I, I spend a lot of time focusing on that and how do we strengthen our balance sheet. And I'd say the last piece is, you know, over the next year is, and this is a continuous one, is how do I develop my organization? How do I fill key roles? How do I get the right people in place? How do I increase the diversity of my organization? Um, you know, that's one of the, the personal goals that I have is, is to continue to focus in that area. And that consumes a lot of time, whether it's mentoring, it's developing, it's, it's helping to build out succession plans, it's interviewing candidates externally. Um, it's all those different things. But those are, you know, three big priorities that, that I have for the coming year. Jim Peters, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Jack, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. We are back at the Modern SaaS Finance Summit with Jeff Epstein of Bessemer Partners. Something I'm not sure you touched on today, but I'm curious. When it comes to communication with the board, what is the role do you see that CFOs play in fast growth firms? The number one rule there is no surprises. So there's always going to be bad news. You're going to have things that, that go wrong. And what board members under, an experienced board member expects that. They know that it's not going to be perfect. They don't want to be surprised. So if something happens bad, if you lose a big customer, if you miss your numbers, as soon as you as the CFO know about it, make sure the CEO knows about it. And then either one of you or both should tell the board and say, okay, here's the problem and here's our plan to try to mitigate it. Now, do you have any advice for CEOs, and I think this goes for CFOs as well, who are busy trying to scale but don't have time to properly hire the people they need? What, what would you tell them? Well, if I think about my own career, I started off as an individual contributor, as most of us do, and I, do, I did 100% of everything. And then you become a manager and you hire some people, and then maybe you're doing 75% and delegating 25%, and then you get more senior. And when I was the CFO at Oracle, I had 6,500 people in, they were in my organization, and I did you know 1% and delegated 99%. So what you're trying to do as you grow is think about how can you uh, – leverage your own time to hire people who are very skilled and experienced and take some of the burden off. And, th and that's, there's no easy answer because you don't know exactly when the time to, to hire is. But if you have enough capital, uh, it's usually uh, gives you great leverage to, to take something you're doing repetitively where you're perhaps not the best person to do it and hire someone to, to take that off your plate to free up your time to do other things. Can maybe uh, supply us with some examples of what might be cl classified in your mind as CFO priorities inside a fi uh, fast growth firm. Now, these are things that are often, they often fight for attention inside a company that might be scaling like crazy, but, but they're still priorities for CFOs. Well, I think the first priority for uh, any CFO, as I said, is, is making sure you have enough cash. Uh, also, the setting the tone of ethics and 
compliance uh, is very important because if you end up with people cutting corners when you're small, it's just going to get worse uh, as you get bigger and, and you need to try to be the company that you want to be when you, when you grow up. Uh, then there's a, a, a trade-off of efficiency and effectiveness. And you're trying to experiment, try new things. You're adding new products, new you're going after new customers. Uh, and while you're doing that, you're necessarily inefficient. But what the CFO is trying to do is sort of follow the product development people and the salespeople and say, now that you've been doing this for a while, how do I try to get the same results with fewer resources and try to, and try to be more effective and efficient? And then finally, the, the area that I, th I think is very important is resource allocation. So any company ha is going to have limited resources. Do I, if I have one product, when do I add a second product? If I'm only in one geography, when do I add a second geography? Uh, and if I have a product line, when do I add another feature? And so the CFO can bring an analytical rigor to that resource allocation decision to make sure you're investing in the highest priority projects. You know, one of the points you made about sort of uh, bringing the ethics forward and again, I think what happens sometimes is finance leaders become more guarded and they don't communicate as much as they should perhaps because they're kind of trying not to send any wrong signals at any given time. So it's a real leadership te test to put forth uh, and build the trust that's needed in organizations and at the same time remain guarded. And any thoughts on what I... Well, the, the general rule is under promise and over deliver from a business context, and I think the same thing is true on, on ethical side, is that there's always temptations to, to cut corners. Uh, salespeople will be uh, encouraged to give customers special deals and maybe not tell the CFO about it. And if you, if you let that get out of hand, uh, you, you're just asking for trouble. Jeff Epstein, thank you for answering our questions. Thank you. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.